your Bibles. Turn to the book of Titus. We are in our final sermon before we get to Thanksgiving and Christmas. And then we'll jump back into Titus again after the first of the year. Um, but, uh, we're in Titus, the first chapter. You know, Paul had left, uh, had left Titus on Crete. And for whatever reason, Paul had to leave early. He didn't get everything completed that he normally likes to. But he, he wrote back to Titus telling him to put things in order. Paul was unable to finish that, so he wanted Titus to do it. He wanted to give him some instruction on what to do. It. And because of that, we are lucky we get, it, we get to see what was intended by Paul when they started a church, when they put leadership in. What was going on in, on the island of Crete? Paul had preached the gospel. He preached the gospel to the Cretans, and many had believed, and churches were formed in all the different towns. But there was still a lot of work to be done. Leaders needed to be appointed because there were some problems on Crete. There were some problems specifically in the churches. So in verse 10, Paul begins in verse 10 by saying, For there, and he's saying, This is the reason why I have laid out for you, like we've talked about the last two weeks. What you need to do, how you need to appoint leaders, who do they need to be, what are the guidelines, what are the rules for those who are going to be leaders. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Not just the circumcision party, but specifically, especially those people who are in that party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, could you imagine that being told to you by one of your very own people? And Paul says in 13, this testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Father, we praise you for your word. Help us to glean out of it what the Holy Spirit wants us to learn. Help us, Father, not to be empty talkers. We pray this in your name. Amen. Titus was to appoint leaders because there were people in the church who were being disruptive. Whole families were being upset. And Paul's solution was not to just talk to them, but to have authority over them much more authority than what was there originally apparently titus was not able to go to every single church and solve every single problem so leaders needed to be placed in those churches who knew correct doctrine who knew what needed to be done and were the right people so these these empty talkers could be stopped we got to remember that too at this time that each home each church met in a home they, they did not meet in a church building like we have here so if, if there's a problem in a home, and they probably had anywhere from 25 to 30, maybe 25 to 30 people. If there's a problem, if people are upsetting other people in that little space, it's, it, it creates a problem in that home, and whole families were being disrupted. There were two groups of people, actually, that Paul was concerned about. The first group he calls empty talkers. These people may say a lot, Really, they don't say anything. I was going to show you a video. There's actually this is actually an art where you can go in and you can say you can talk to this person and you can ask these questions. 
These questions have no meaning whatsoever. And believe it or not, the person will answer you. Saying, yeah, that sounds about right. There's a man, um, I think he's from Canada, he mastered this. And it's actually some of the, some of the tools that many of the false prophets today that are in the churches, that are in the, many of the Pentecostal churches, that they use. They talk about all kinds of things that make no sense whatsoever. And people are like, oh. But it's just empty talk. If you're interested in seeing the video, I'll send you the clip. I'll, or you can email me or let me know and I'll, I'll send you the clip so you can see it. I didn't want to take the time to watch it. Because you've got to watch the whole thing and see that he's actually saying nothing. And everybody just agrees with him. These empty talkers. Now the Greek word is actually one word for empty talkers. And it's a, word, it's, it's a beautifully rich word if you know Greek. And it's mateo lagos. Mateo lagos. Empty talking. They peddle big words. Vaporous content. You might say they're big-winded. I think they were probably politicians. I don't know, maybe. Big words, little content. Senseless talking will lead to senseless thinking. Paul warned Timothy himself, actually warned Timothy in another place about these same kind of people. He says in 1 Timothy 1.6, he says, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions. Discussions that have no purpose. Now, there are parts of theology. There are parts of the Bible where we read it, and it's important for us to discuss them because of the words, because of the language, because of the context. But there's a whole lot of things in this world that are just empty talking. Just go on social media, and you'll see a whole lot of empty talking. The Cretans that Titus is having to deal with, put on a really good show. But at the end of the day, there was no spiritual benefit for anything that they were saying. And what was sad was when that happens, in the reality, instead of talking about, instead of talking about Scripture, talking about God's Word, they're talking about empty things, and those things take the truth from those who listen to them. They sound impressive, but their words are intended to boost their own egos. And Paul's solution for these people was to silence them. His his goal, he wanted to silence them completely. He didn't want them to talk. Because these empty talkers would lead people to another group. And this other group that Paul speaks about are those who are deceivers. Now, unlike the empty talkers who said nothing while saying a bunch of stuff, these deceivers would say things that had substance to them. But it was a false substance. And Paul's solution to these deceivers was to rebuke them sharply. See, the problem with these two groups is that the reality is they are rejecting authority. They're rejecting the authority of Jesus Christ and they're rejecting the authority of Paul and and who Paul put there, Titus. And when they do that, they they enjoy controversy. I used to know someone, they just loved controversy. Even if they did not believe the opposite side that somebody was discussing, they would automatically take the opposite side just to stir up trouble. 
Because they believe that if you stir up trouble, you'll get to the truth sooner or later. The problem is, when you stir up trouble, you start to create emotions. And when we get emotional, we don't think straight. When we get extremely offended and angry, we are, our minds are no longer in control. Our hearts are, and we'll find out later how deceitful the heart is. The term that Paul uses for these peoples is the same word he used last week when he was talking about children who are disobedient to their parents. When you have an elder, the child needs to be obedient. The same word he uses for these people who are deceivers. So this task in front of Titus is extremely daunting. He has to deal with very difficult people. And Paul wants to emphasize that, you know, it's it's a problem, but it's partially a problem because of where Titus is. He is on the island of Crete. And one of their own philosophers, and we know who that philosopher is that Paul is referencing because we have his writings and we see right in there he says the same thing that Paul says that he says. His name was Epimenides. I had to practice that word. Epimenides. He was a Crete philosopher from about the 7th or the 6th century B.C., and Epimenides called Cretans evil beasts. Now, there was irony in that him doing that because the island of Crete has no major predators. There are no mountain lions. There are no bears. There are no tigers. I don't know. I don't know what a, what a wild beast there might be. But there are no, 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 except for man, man being the highest predator, but there are no major beasts there. I mean, no dangerous animals, but the people actually would make up for the lack of the wild animals. And that's basically what Epimenides was saying. Now, throughout the New Testament, believers in Christ, we are called, there's an animal that we are called to be. We are called to be sheep. Now, I've done sermons on being sheep. Sheep are not the most intelligent animals in the world. They easily wander off. That's why Jesus says he'll, he'll leave the 99 to go after the one because the one has wandered off from the 99. Most of us have a tendency to wander. We're not the most intelligent beings sometimes. Even the most smartest people in the world have some problems with common sense. And so think about that. So now you have the church, sheep, in the midst of wild beasts. Not a good picture, because the Cretans that were in the church were easily swayed by the people who were empty talkers and were deceivers, like sheep to a slaughter is what they were. Peter was talking about this, that that we are to be, we are sheep but we are called that because, because we have a chief shepherd who is Jesus Christ, and leaders of the church are the under-shepherds. In 1 Peter 5, 1-4, through 4, he says, So I exhort the elders among you. So I'm, I'm, I challenge you, elders, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, meaning that I'm saved, I'm going to be with Christ when he comes back, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, means don't do it because you think you have to, Do it because you're honored to. But willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, 
you will receive the unfading fading crown of glory. He's saying, be a shepherd. These people are sheep. They will wander. You need to take care of them. And you need to do it willingly. And you need to do it lovingly. Like unruly children and wild animals, these people were empty talkers and deceivers. They, they didn't want any part of being part of this flock of the shepherd. Their way was better. They wanted to be a solitary wild animal doing their own thing. Kind of like today, I think that's a problem in our world. And as I said, sheep don't do well among wild animals. They need a flock. They need a shepherd. And the same holds true today. Now, today, there are many in the church who say, well, we just need to get along with those who don't agree with us. And that's partially true on things that really don't matter. But there are certain things that are <laughs> undeniable in Scripture that we cannot accept in the church. So we can't just get along. We need to stop them. If it's against church doctrine, we need to stop it in the church. But many churches and many denominations have just decided to, we'll just get along. We'll just accept it. It'll be okay. And watch the news, and sooner or later you'll see the problems that are occurring because of that. Paul would have none of that. And Paul is very consistent in what he tells Titus to do because he also told Timothy, he says, preach the word in 2 Timothy 4. Be ready in season and out of season. He tells him, reprove, which means go to them and show it to them. Show them the truth. Reprove them. Rebuke them is what he tells them. Also, rebuke and exhort, which means lift up, with complete patience and teaching. Don't go and smack them around. Don't kick them out of the church. The whole point of, of going to somebody when there's a problem is not to kick them out of the, the congregation. The point is to reconcile and stay together. So we do that with complete patience and teaching. When somebody, somebody gets mad at you, what do you do? Do you get mad back? No. You have to be calm. Let them throw their fit and then prove your point. Don't get angry. Don't lash out. Notice how Paul tells Timothy to rebuke with complete patience and teaching. So if you think about that, now we can understand what some of the things why Paul said that an elder must not be short-tempered, why an elder must be kind, why an elder must be willing to, to rebuke, but in a loving way. A leader who is not arrogant, quick-tempered, or violent would be more effective at correcting an issue than one who is angry, because that person who's angry and lashing out will not maintain the unity of the body. Paul tells Titus to rebuke them sharply with the same goal as Paul had for Timothy, to, Timothy, to return them to sound doctrine, a sound faith in righteousness. The point is to restore. That's why we're told, when, when if you know that a brother has a problem with you, you lay your offering on the altar, and you go and you resolve it with your brother. And if somebody has a problem, you go and you go and you try to resolve it with them, and it doesn't happen, then you go and you bring somebody else with you, a witness who can mediate. And you go and you sit with them and you mediate. If that doesn't work, you take them in front of the church. And I don't mean in front of the church church. You take it to the elders. And if that doesn't work, and the person is definitely in the wrong, the elders say that person is in the wrong then you treat them like a non-believer. 
You have nothing to do with them. Now, that doesn't mean you treat them badly, because what do we do with non-believers? Do we go out in, 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 the, in the world today, find somebody we know is a sinner, and slap them around and, and, and yell at them and say that you're going to hell? No, we don't. We love them. We still love them. We can still be around them, but we just don't treat them the same way we would a brother and sister in Christ. But the point is for them to miss that and then want ultimately to come back around and be reconciled again. That's the whole point of it. That's why we must do it patiently. While we don't know the full details of the false teaching that was going on on the island of Crete, Paul does call out that particular group. He calls out the circumcision group. In Galatians, we can kind of see their influence that was going on. What would happen is Paul would go into a town and he would spend the time there and he would he would share the gospel and a church would form. And of course, Paul was he was called to go. So when he when he felt like, okay, I've been here long enough, we've got people in place, I'm gonna go here. People from Jerusalem, Jews from Jerusalem, would come in behind him, and they were known as the the um, circumcision group. They believed, and I'll get here in a minute, they believed that just believing in Christ wasn't enough. That there was something more to it than that. And he says in the book of Galatians, he says, For, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. What he was talking about here is, he is in, he's in, he's in this place with a bunch of Christians, and a bunch of believers in the church, and Peter is there. Peter, being a Jew, being one of the pinnacles of the church, he wasn't the head of the church in Jerusalem. That was James, the half-brother of Jesus. He's, he's there, and when he's with, with the Christians there, Peter is, he's eating with them like he's one of them. He's like a Gentile. Okay, remember, this is a place where there were Gentiles. But when the leaders came from James coming to just to kind of see what was going on, Peter separates himself and ignores the Gentiles and goes with his Jewish friends. We've all experienced that probably in our lifetime. You're playing with your friends, and then this one friend comes along who everybody wants to be around, and he wants to do something else, and he goes, all your friends go off with that one friend, and you're left alone? How do you feel? And, and Paul sees this, and he says, what are you doing? He actually confronts Peter to his face. He rebukes him. Now, he did it, and he said, but what are you doing? And it got so bad that even Barnabas started doing it. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who was with Paul on the first missionary journey, and then went off on his own, his own missionary journeys. With John Mark, Paul rebuked Peter to his face. See, the circumcision group, what they would say is, they'd say, yeah, you know, you, you, you become a follower of Christ by faith alone. But once you do that, in order to become more like Christ, you had to be circumcised. In order for you to grow, to be more like Jesus, and to be a good Christian, you must be circumcised. Their goal for the Gentiles 
was to make them be under the subject of the Jewish laws of human conduct. And there's a danger in this. We think, well, it's no, well, it is a big deal for a man when you're that old, when you're in your 30s and 40s, to be circumcised. It's not an easy procedure to handle, but you can do it. As a baby, it's not as bad, but it's, it's hard. But it didn't mean anything. Paul even said it doesn't mean anything. But the danger is that religious rules do not make us more righteous. And, protect, and it doesn't protect us from the influences of the world. Just because we follow a rule doesn't make us any more righteous. In fact, focusing on rule-keeping instead of faith will cause us to fall headfirst into the very traps that are set in this world. Paul confirms what Epimenides says about the Cretans and lumps the circumcision group in with them, in with the wild beast. Why? Because they're coming into the flock trying to devour the sheep. He's saying that this circumcision group is a bunch of liars, evil beasts, and they're gluttons. Their self-pious belief in following the Jewish myth of circumcision did make them, didn't make them any better than the non-believing Cretans. They're just the same as a non-believer. That doesn't change anything. Because it's not about what we do physically to the body, it's what we do to the heart. Where's your heart? Where's, who, 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 does, who has your heart? Is it you? Is it the world? Or is it Jesus? Now, this group was not saying that you can do whatever you want, because that's the other extreme that people will go to. They either go to the point where they're saying, you have these 25 rules you've got to follow. If you follow these rules, you're a good Christian. Or you have this other group that says, hey, you don't have to worry about anything. Just do whatever you want. We're all saved. It's all good. They're both wrong. They're both wrong. Many churches today teach this extreme rather than that extreme. But it's still an extreme. The, the circumcision group were, ex, were very religious people. They weren't do-what-you-please kind of people. They were you-must-live-like-this kind of people. See, the problem is these laws that, that, these laws that, that, that look like they're helping protect us and promoting holiness in the end do nothing but limit godliness. Because what happens is we end up focusing on the law rather than focusing on the spirit of the law. If instead of focusing on the, we focus on the law, what it says to do, rather than what it's supposed to do to us. Godliness becomes, godliness becomes nothing more than a checklist that we can check out. I love checklists for the most part. But sometimes I get too far that I live by that checklist. I have a checklist of everything i got to do all week. And I just get so tired of doing the same thing on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays. And then I go and I look at my list and I get all freaked out because my list isn't checked off. It's crazy. But that's that We can't live our, our, our faith that way. As long as I do this or I do that, then I'm okay. No, it's not. I mean, Jesus said so. You know, if you if you know you've you've heard it said, you know, that do not commit adultery. But I tell you, 
if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart already. You're built guilty. It doesn't matter. If you, if you, you know, if you do not murder, pretty plain. And I, can, I can check that one off my list. But then Jesus says, do you hate your brother? If you do, you've murdered him in your heart. It's not about the physical. It's about the heart. See, in, in, the, in the eyes of both groups, both extremes, in reality, if you're circumcised, you can live a life of debauchery and still be saved. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. It, uh, it'd be like saying that, you know, I listen to Christian music and I pray and I keep the Sabbath strictly, but I also cheat on my taxes, treat my wife with contempt. I don't love others like I should at the church, but I'm still a Christian. I'm still going to heaven. Really? Because that doesn't play out right. Because from our heart is where our actions come and from our, where our words come from. If, our, if, we're, if we're not doing things, if we're not living a life we should be living, then it's not because, and we're not just saved in here, it, it, our, it should pour out of our heart from that to what we're doing. Jesus kind of addressed this issue in Luke. He tells the story, he says, and says in Luke 10, he says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to him and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. How do I inherit eternal life? Everybody should want to know that question. That should be one of our life questions. How do I, how do I live forever? How do I have eternal life? He said to him, this is Jesus, says to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Because a lawyer was not just somebody who goes to court. A lawyer was someone who would, who would study the law and interpret it. How do you read it, he says, Jesus says. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This is what the lawyer said. And Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. How? Oh. I just need to love God with everything I have, and I need to love everybody around me. Sounds easy, right? In a perfect world, yes. See, the question the lawyer asked next is, he says, but he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and, and who is my neighbor? Another good question. Because if, if this person is not my neighbor, do I need to love them? I mean, it's a valid question. But the problem was, the reason for the question. The lawyer wanted to justify himself. Most lawyers do. No offense if you're related to a lawyer. No offense intended, at least. He wanted to know what he had to do, what was the bare minimum he had to do to be good enough for God. Almost like he wanted to know what was the bare minimum. You know, what, what do I have to do just to please God? Jesus, obviously, you know the story. If you've been in church at all, Jesus tells him that about the Samaritan. Well, the Jews hated Samaritans. Jesus is saying, go and do likewise. Be as good as that Samaritan is. I'm sure they walked away offended. Both Jesus and Paul are making the same point. When we begin to question, when we begin our questions with what must I do, or end it with, is that enough? 
then we're limiting our godliness and we're leaning into legalism. What do I need to do? There's not enough that you can do. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? You can't on your own. There's nothing physically that you can do to inherit eternal life except the only thing we can do is believe in Jesus Christ. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you are saved. When we ask those questions like, what do I need to do? Or, Or is that enough? It shows where our heart is and where our motives are. If we can do the bare minimum, then everything else we do doesn't matter. We can't take shortcuts to godliness. I love shortcuts. I use them all the time. I'm on the computer. I have keystrokes that I can do. I have a little device that I can actually press a button. It does like four or five shortcuts for me that I need to do consistently. I love shortcuts. There's no shortcut to godliness. It takes work. We can't put a list on, of rules on our refrigerator, read them every day, and keep them and say, there we go, I'm a godly person. At the core, we are all sinful. Paul says in Romans 3, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. None of us are good. Jesus himself says this. Guy comes and says, good teacher. He says, why do you call me good? Nobody is good but the Father. Nobody. We cannot live lives of godliness on our own. So Paul is telling Titus to teach sound doctrine that leads to godliness and good works. And he's later going to talk about the grace of God that offers us salvation and teaches us to say no to ungodliness. That will be in January when we get back into this. And passions of this world and live grace-controlled lives. Because Paul says in Romans 2, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Grace is freely given. It's not a result of works. So what must you do? There's nothing you can do. You have to trust in God's grace. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. I can't boast about my salvation, say, because I did it. Christ did it, not me. Because it's a heart issue. Because grace is not just, not just a catalyst for the beginning of our salvation, but it's the fuel that drives us to godliness, and it's a heart issue. Verse 15 of Titus 1, Paul says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. What Paul's saying here is that if our hearts are pure, then we will be pure. I remember growing up as a kid, we always, I went to a Nazarene church, and they always talked about how my, sin, my heart was dark. It was made white as snow, white as the pure driven snow. No legalistic rule keeping will make our hearts pure. I can't have a checklist of what I need to do, and as I check that off, oh, I'm 10% more pure. I'm 10% more pure. It doesn't happen. That's why David wrote in Psalm 51, he says, Create in me a clean heart. Who can create a clean heart in you? Only God. 
O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Hmm, I, I think I heard that just a little bit ago, someplace. Um, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. David's saying, I can't do it. I can't run the checklist. All I can do is trust in you, God. Change my heart. Change it. Or we're going to talk to Sina in a little bit. I'm getting ahead of myself. Because, see, we are driven by our hearts. And sometimes that's a good thing. We'd be pretty mean people if we weren't driven by at least some kind of, a little bit of purity in our hearts. Jeremiah tells us, though, in Jeremiah 17, he says, Thus says the Lord, and so it's God speaking, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, if our hearts are clean... And if we're trusting in the Word of God, then we'll strive to live pure lives. If you want to know why we struggle, if in your life, and I've had times in my life like this, I struggle to do the right thing. Why? Because my heart is not pure. It's not right. That's why Paul tells us to take it captive. Take the sin nature captive and kill it because it will, it will impurify your heart. A pure heart leads to a pure conscience. And the opposite is true for the one whose heart is defiled. A defiled heart will lead to a defiled conscience. Because our conscience is the witness in our heart that guides us in our lives. It was placed in us by God himself. And it's influenced by the information that we feed it. Garbage in, garbage out. Feed it with the passions and the traps of the world and you will be defiled and your actions will show it, which means con being contaminated and polluted. And this defiled conscience drives a life that is far from God. That's why Paul goes on in verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The Cretans, who were causing the problem in the church, they act, their actions were showing them that they, do, they may say they believe in God, but they don't. They proclaim they're believers, but they're not. They were doing everything that believers in Christ do. But the reality was their hearts were very far from God. And their consciences had been seared. When you sear something, you stop it from flowing either way. You cut it off. You cut off the blood flow. Their actions and their fruits were denying Christ. They, they, they had not repented for their sins. There was no visible change in their lives. If you say you're a follower of Christ, then your life needs to reflect it. The Apostle John says in 1 John, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We need to walk like Christ. As God's people, we're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to stumble. We're going to fall. But when we fall, our conscience will speak to us and say, hey, you made a mistake. You need to repent. And it drives us there. 
and we return to walking in Christ. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves, look at yourselves, and see whether you are in faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize that this about yourselves, that Jesus is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, what are we supposed to do with this? It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. How do we do that? By taking every thought captive. By spending time with God. By asking Him, create in me a clean heart. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Help me to see you and help others to see you in me so my conscience will be clean and my heart pure so that when Christ comes back, we're ready. Let's pray.